I just set it up to record now. I don't know if it is. I think Ireland was colonized long before. No, but I just mean the Catholic Protestant thing, you know. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, dad would like, my dad would like this conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> is, it, well, is he a historical buff or um, yeah. a, a religious zealot? Or, um... Um, well, not to bore you with all the family history, but um, he was a Roman Catholic. Oh, wow. Um, and I was brought up Roman Catholic as well, but I defected to... You're a Okay. Okay. Good. Good on you. Yeah. My sister. She. My sister had her um, confirmation. She's older. And then when I was like 13, 14, they were like, "Do you want to get confirmed?" I was like, "No, I'm not into it." And they were like, "Okay, fair enough. That's fine." And my sister was like, "What? We've got a choice." (laughs) (laughs) We were we were pitching uh, the Passive House Institute the other week for why don't we do a podcast episode predicated on the reformation <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, there, there is there is a logic to this because dan's argument was that um passive, passive house the way it grew uh, uh you've got zealots who speak in latin basically and are not really necessarily trying to not it's not that they're not trying to I suppose, it's a closed shop like you've got to yeah. work within their scripture and their dogma in order to become passive house accredited however in Scotland and Belgium, things are changing. And so all of a sudden, the diet of worms has opened things up. Then, uh... Yeah, but, but they are involved in So that's where the analogy starts to break down, that they are willing uh, collaborators in the yeah. subversion of their own uh, of, of their own dogma, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. um, our tricks with you guys. Oh, shall I do a little intro and then we can get st- start talking? Yeah, makes yeah. sense. <laughs> okay uh, welcome to zero ambitions uh, a podcast about sustainability the built environment and jeff what are we saying for the last bit now did you say it's a, a podcast about sustainability and jeff <laughs> yes no i oh, said no, the jeff bit first oh yeah sorry i, I said down. oh yeah no in fact i said yes and jeff uh what do you want the last bit to be jeff so mocked me the- in the week because it it was garbage i've started using duncan asked me to change net zero goals to carbon zero goals or zero carbon goals at some point just in case i've not made myself entirely clear this is about the bit at the beginning the proposition at podcast where i say this is a podcast about sustainability the built environment and carbon zero goals which is a little bit nonsense i suppose in retrospect jeff's right anyway this is us bickering about it and me asking jeff to resolve it to his satisfaction and, yeah, and, and carbon zero is the text that's up there, and and that uh, it's it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, um, it's like describing something as zero net or something. I don't know. Um, so, um, I, I, in fairness, it is a term that some people use, but uh, it strikes me as strange. Um, and this whole area is very confusing actually, because then you you get into uh, you know uh, energy positive or carbon positive, carbon negative, and nobody quite knows, you know, because the two terms can be used to mean the exact opposite sometimes of what they actually mean, you know? So yeah. And you bring uh, in zero, like embodied carbon and yeah, net zero was quite simple for us. I don't know why we yeah. moved away from that. Well, it's because it's the zero, you don't have the problems. It's less confusing. Yeah. 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 Fun. The net zero, it's the net part that can be, uh, an accountancy trick. I think that's well, the, yeah. the critique. No, absolutely. Uh, and uh, whether whether it's a realistic target, uh, well, yeah, you're right. The, the accountancy sleight of hand is the issue there. But anyway, I think from now on, 
um, we should be describing it as, as zero carbon. And I know that that might seem fanciful because, you know, the only way for us to get properly zero carbon is if we just all stop doing anything, stop even exhaling because you release CO2 uh, when, when, when you breathe out, you know. And that would be the best thing for the planet, actually. <laughs> <laughs> stop breathing, stop reproducing yeah. as well. That would be better for the planet, yeah. wouldn't it? So yes. this is a podcast about wishing for the end. Good. Right. <laughs> and, uh, today we're with L. George and Emily Braham of Energy Sprung. Now, that was the first question. Is that question. how you pronounce it? Is yeah. that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Energy Sprung? I don't. I say Energy Sprung, uh, but our Dutch colleagues say Energy Sprung. And I think it depends uh, who you talk to in the UK team as to which way we say it. Well, it's sort of, it, it means energy jump, doesn't it? Energy, energy leap. leap, yeah. Energy yeah. leap, okay. Yeah, okay. And sprung, I guess, spring. You know, I guess that's where that comes from in terms of the etymology, I'd assume. Yeah, it's and that's another funny area, actually, too, because, you know, one thing that we see, I see occasionally when you get kind of more more kind of remain-leaning people from the UK, sometimes um, of an older kind of generation, when they talk about Ireland, uh, to me, they'll, they'll, they'll try to be respectful and they'll talk, uh, they'll, they'll refer to Ireland as era, for instance, you know, uh, Irish word for era, but that's for, for, for Ireland, but it seems incongruous, you know, in the same way that, that referring to something as Roma or whatever, you know, Rome as Roma, uh, it, when you're otherwise talking in English would sound strange. But anyway, um, it's a branding issue. And energy sprung, energy sprung or energy sprung, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting brand. It's a funny one, actually, because it's a name to me. First time you hear it, it's very, um, you know, it's a long kind of, uh, kind of lumpy name. But it sticks for me. I don't know about what, what you find, Dan. See you on? No, I've just put some food in my mouth. <laughs> I thought you were just away rambling. Yeah, well, I was, but I thought I'd catch you out. Yeah, mm. I'm sorry. It's been a busy day. But yeah, sorry. What was your question, Jeff? I, um, energy sprung as a name, and I, I could probably should have put this termly in L first, but um, um, I as as long and uh, lumpy or in Congress, whatever as it seems, it actually it sticks. For me, you know, uh, yeah. it's a name that, that I've easily remembered. You know, well, I think you right. should put it to them rather than me. Like we've not yeah. let them talk at all. No, it's quite, un- it's quite unique, Welcome. isn't it? <laughs> I, thanks. It's quite a unique name. I think that's why it stands out and people remember it. And yeah. it's got a, a, it's got a, it, it's exotic, I suppose, because <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's not just English. And it's, yeah. it's quite li- the Dutch are very literal. Energy from. Energy means energy leap, so we're leaping away from the old way of doing it. And I do find the Dutch people, it's very straightforward. There's no the way of words that we have um, in Britain and Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it, we're a lot more um, philosophical, whereas they just say how it is. And I saw in the Netherlands when we went to RC Panels, which is one of the main manufacturers that have. Um, built up a market in the Netherlands and they had this mission on the wall it, the a pa- wooden panel and it, in Dutch I can't remember the exact wording but it meant making carbon neutral profitable and it's like oh so you you want to make money out of it and it was very like yeah well obviously we want to make money out of it um <laughs> but I don't think you'd get that in the UK this sort of like really blatant this is what our mission is to be carbon neutral oh and profitable and I thought Fair play, and and I thought that was very Dutch, unapologetic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well it'll often, never work unless you have that that element, you know. All too often, the profitability would supersede any carbon uh, neutral goals in the the building yeah. process in this in this country. 
Uh, it was one alongside the other, which I think is important to acknowledge, because if we're going to be sustainable, we've got these three pillars, people, planet, profit. Without all three, we're not going to be sustainable and the, the, their business isn't going to be sustainable. So I thought I thought that was I thought I, I liked it. You know, I like the blatancy of it. So for anyone who might not be aware of what uh, Energy Sprong is, do you want to give them a, a little pricey? Yes. OK, I can do that. Um, so Energy Sprong is uh, a, a model for getting to net zero retrofits and new build. And it incorporates a lot of different things. So uh, a system change. So looking at offsite manufacture so that you can rapidly scale up high quality retrofits, requesting a performance guarantee so that you can be sure that it's going to work after the retrofits happened. And then because of the fact you've got this performance guarantee, enabling a, a different business case. So the resident saves money on their energy bills, but instead of making the whole saving, they pay some of that back to the landlord who's invested in the retrofit in the first place. Um, that's it in a nutshell. Our role as Energy Sprong UK is, is trying to make that happen in the UK. So we're basing Energy Sprong in the UK on that model. It's come from the Netherlands and we're looking at how do we adapt it, what needs to happen to make that work better in the UK. So developing the market, working with contractors, solution providers, manufacturers, working with social housing organisations to provide a big launch platform in the UK and then trying to help feedback where policy doesn't work. So what's going wrong in the UK? What's different in other countries that makes things happen quicker, faster, better, which it is doing um, at the moment. And, and your own background, before we get into the into the long grass of, uh, of understanding the, you know, the, the process better, uh, the, uh, what, brought, what, what brought you both to Energy Sprung? Uh, I was working in social housing as head of energy at Nottingham City Homes, who had 26,000 homes. So I was trying to find uh, a way to retrofit all of the housing uh, in Nottingham. Because Nottingham City Homes was now low as well, I was responsible or partly responsible with the council for finding uh, cross-tenure solutions. So we were doing big neighbourhood retrofits and um, we did one of the big biggest cross-tenure retrofits. It was one of my projects in Clifton and um, we did two and a half thousand homes of which 1,500 were privately owned because we'd made a consistent clear offer for private residents who then took up an external wall insulation and it was on wimpy no finds. So it had this great impact because people yeah. were picking all sorts of different colours of insulation. We had seven colours and people could just have free choice of which colour they chose. So we had all sorts of uh, colourful um, terraces afterwards compared to the old grey and brown uh, pebble dash that was there before. Mm. Um when I look back now, not the best quality. And um, some of the issues I had with the retrofit that we were delivering at the time, it you know, it wasn't sustainable. It was based on grant funding and it was boom and bust. The quality mm. wasn't brilliant because it was all about trying to make it as cheap as possible. Um, we didn't have the right training. We didn't have the right labour. Uh, you know, we had apprenticeship schemes in place, but then because of the boom and bust of the grant funding, people would lose their jobs. And we had people who were being trained up from the neighbourhood who then didn't get to see their apprenticeship through. So there were an awful lot of things going wrong. It was a real kind of systemic failure. Um, and we were doing it. We were achieving it. We were delivering and making people's homes warmer and helping with fuel poverty. But actually, it wasn't the way to do it moving forward. So we started looking at how do we find a better way to do this? Um, we got some European funding to do that. And we were saying, what's the gold standard of retrofit? What should we be looking for uh, doing in the future? And at that point, we we had somebody from the Netherlands talking to us at a Bayes event, I think. Um, and they showed this great 
picture, which I'll always remember, which had a, a signpost with lots of different um, traffic lights and signs and everything going on, going green at the same time. And they were saying this really is a kind of system based thing. You've got to kind of address all of these different things at the same time. And that's where the energy spawn model uh, came in. So we then did the first pilot in the UK from uh, in Nottingham. It was one of my projects. Um, and I, with others, so Energy Sprung UK was set up under National Energy Foundation originally. And it was a, a membership organisation where a, a bunch of housing providers who all felt the same as we did and a bunch of contractors who all said, we can do better. You know, we can do something here that's that's different and that's better. And we all came together and, and worked through what does this look like in the UK and, and tried to get some projects underway. Yeah. That, that was quite a long sentence, wasn't it? <laughs> How did you come to be involved, Elle? Uh, very different to Emily, actually, and our backgrounds are quite different, which I think is part of the strength of our team is we are all we do have quite a lot of um, coming from different areas that coming together to deliver one thing. And we should say, actually, our mission, which we didn't touch on before, that is desirable, warm, affordable homes for life. And obviously a home is a fundamental human right that hopefully most people have access to, but sadly not all. Um, and I came into this. Uh, space and actually I don't really know much about retrofit so don't tell anyone because I've come from the new build sector really I've spent a couple of decades as um, an environmental engineer really specializing in sustainable construction and mostly working in the new build commercial sector so I've worked on schools um, hospitals roads uh, lots of contaminated sites and um, all that kind of thing and I built my own home uh, about 10 years ago, using off-site techniques. And at the time, I was working a lot in the off-site sector to try and um, improve the efficiency of uh, South Mead Hospital redevelopment project in Bristol. So I spent a number of years doing that. And I really saw the benefits of off-site construction and designing for manufacturing and assembly from doing that work. And at the same time, because I was building my own home, I started thinking more about homes and then uh, uh, two years ago, I was looking at what my next step was going to be. And I decided to um, start my own business, which is called Elevate. And at the same time, I saw Energy Sprong were advertising for Collaboration Hub Manager, which is my role at Energy Sprong. Um, and I thought, well, I don't really know that much about retrofit, but I know a lot of things about offsite construction, which is one of the fundamental principles of Energy Sprong, uh, one of the sort of key things that we do differently is that we advocate for offsite and industrialising uh, for quality retrofit. So I kind of came at it, uh, bringing that experience to the party of our, our team at MDT, which is the market development team. So uh, yeah, a bit of a different approach. I have worked in social housing briefly, and it really sort of made me think I do want to work in housing because I think there's so much opportunity to, to help people really, because there's so many poor quality homes and I want to address that. And tell yeah. me with Energy Spring UK, what is your role then energy sprung projects i mean um and at this point i asked jeff to do something about his microphone or his headphones that he was using to eliminate that scratchy noise which has probably been annoying you sorry about that he took his headphones out it should sound better what i was going to say um, so with regard to energy sprung uk what i don't understand exactly is its role within uh energy sprung projects as you know uh so you you partner with is it you work with um you know are you the contractor or do you partner with contractors and with uh with manufacturers or or how, how exactly does pan out on on individual projects i'm really glad you've asked this because i think it's one of the challenges we face actually in the industry nobody ever really knows so 
we're a market development team so we work in the middle of all of the different actors that are needed to deliver the retrofit project and um, we'll do what's needed when it's needed so we've supported with setting up a procurement approach an innovation partnership with the mayor of london and turner and townsend and that was intended to remove some of the barriers that are there for procurement so it's about finding the barriers trying to put something in place that uh, removes those barriers we help with making projects work better facilitating communication between the different parties that's one of Elle's roles so the collaboration hub that we've set up and and Elle manages brings together construction sector and housing providers to talk through some of the problems and construction sector to talk through problems together as well so sharing some of their knowledge with each other there's even things that we're not allowed to say that they share that they do share because it would be anti-competitive but they're, they're sharing these things and it's really helpful so there's things that are happening because we are um, pushing people to think differently and to do things differently than they usually would. But we don't actually do the contractor role. We're not the housing provider. We're not a consultant because usually we're the ones that secure the grant to cover our costs. And therefore, we're the ones that sometimes bring the capital grant as well to do the demonstration project. We've got a, a European project at the moment. We're lead partner in one of the biggest interreg Northwest Europe projects at the moment. And it's uh, it's got 12 demonstrators happening across Europe and three are in the UK. So we've secured the grant funding for the landlords. And then we've got things to do like stock assessment. So we'll develop a business case with the landlords and we'll look at which properties they should include and how they can find the match funding that they need to put in alongside the grant. Um, we'll help develop contracts for them to share with their tenants so that they can get the tenants signed up to contributing some of their savings. We'll help them put monitoring. Sometimes we put the monitoring in and we'll help do the analysis after the retrofit's finished to show whether it's working or not. So all the the kind of bits that don't really fall to anybody else naturally, we're there trying to fill those gaps to make it work better. So Energy Sprung's more of a, a strategy for whole house refurbishment and a funding to achieve net zero. So we're not manufacturers not contractors we don't own any homes we're in the middle it's a very weird well that's what i was thinking yeah it's a very weird space to be like uh catalyst was the word i was reaching for and it's interesting to hear it in those terms because i mean part of the when we were discussing what we wanted to talk about the theme i i hit on that felt most apt was like the industrialization of retrofit because this is what you guys in some senses are, are working towards pulling together all sorts of different players to work in a coherent and structured manner, which will enable an industry to burgeon. Burgeon? No, grow. Yeah. Flourish. <laughs> Flourish, that's it. Flourish. That's what I was looking for. Sorry, I'm a little bit ill today, so I'm not <laughs> – yeah. So I might be a bit more rambling than usual. I think we're, I think we're quite – I think we're quite away from flourishing, if I'm honest. I think we're that's, still – the intention, the, yeah. We're still in the growth phase because there's an awful lot of scaling needed and we need a lot more products to be able to sort of say this is a flourishing industry. But that's certainly our aim. And that's what why we've got an MDT, a market development team, because we were trying to develop a market. Um, and the Dutch equivalent of the MDT doesn't exist anymore because they achieved this goal of a functioning market. So you now need to turn the heads of manufacturers and I presume that's one of the main issues, is it? Sorry, uh, say that again. Sorry. You need to turn the heads of manufacturers. Is that uh, one of the main issues? But, you know, prefabricated so, system manufacturers. 
Yeah, so you need to you need to work out what they need and then you need to structure a pipeline of projects in the way that's needed for them to be able to put the investment that they need into developing the products. So that's part of the the innovation partnership I mentioned. Um, we'd done these procurement exercises previously with clients and we'd supported them and helped them uh, have the strategy for procurement and the contracts. And sometimes there were there was you know one or two bids coming through and sometimes no bids coming through because people were looking at this and saying this is a bit too hard and it's just oh. 20 homes it's not worth it so uh so we worked with the GLA we were appointed under TNT under the retrofit accelerator for homes and we said how about we put all this demand together we try and produce something that is actually worthwhile people changing what they're doing uh, and it worked we had 10 bids for that and we've now started to see uh, some exciting manufacturers coming through. So we've got a manufacturer who's doing their first prototypes on site in London at the moment. So today they're uh, they're on site having started putting panels on yesterday. They're supposed to be finishing today, I think. Um, right. So it can be that quick once you get products being delivered to site in a you know almost completed way, well, which well, is so much better for you know disruption of well, tenants and. Yeah, and th- th- this is it. I, 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 I think one, one thing that I wanted to cap, catch early on now, because um, uh, it's easy to miss it, um, is just to explain uh, how it works and, and what you know how um, the concept is so kind of like it's like almost science fiction. It's so revolutionary. Um, I first came across Energy Sprung a good number of years ago when um, I was at a conference in Dublin when Ronald Rovers, who I presume you know. Um, a Dutch academic who was involved in in energy sprung early on gave a presentation on it, and he was very. He gave a very. Um, he was a great salesman for an academic, I should say, actually. But he gave a very uh, 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 engaging uh, talk on how it works, um, and he was describing a scenario where it's like you go to an IKEA and you um, you 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 know on the Thursday you order your your home retrofit. A surveyor comes out to your house on the Friday. Um, you book a weekend away, um, and by the time you come back on the Monday, your house is done. Now that sounds—I'm sure that's not been achieved yet. <laughs> but it, but back then they were talking about one-week turnarounds on on deep retrofits, which sounded just extraordinary. So, so is is that a fair summary, or where where are you at uh, behind the concept, and 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 what's the reality actually like? We're not there yet, definitely, um, but. I think the the panels can be craned on in a day. So in Nottingham, where uh, Amelia's Homes set up to be a, a solution provider, small company uh, set up a, a manufacturing um, plant in Nottingham. So they're making their own panels. So they deliver them to site in a way that they're ready to install. This is wall panels and roof panels. And they were doing terraces of bungalows in a day on the most recent phase of works. But that doesn't mean that there isn't prep work before that. So they do have to go out to the property and they do have to insulate, um, you know, new concrete foundations that are insulated around the concrete floors so that they're making sure they're addressing the whole building. They need to put the brackets on ready in advance. But there is a, a different approach to how they plan that. So they are minimizing the amount of time they're having to go into the property. They're planning it much better. It's a, a much more sort of modular construction process. And it has to fit with the manufacturing process. So they've got to be a lot more organized about how these things work. Um, And the goal very much is to have something where there's a different uh, purchasing experience for the consumer. And why shouldn't we aim for that with retrofit? 
wouldn't that be great if you can look at a catalogue of solutions that suit your home and say, actually, that one suits my home and I know how it's going to work. And so I'd like to buy that. And it might be that at that point you trigger the, the purchasing and someone comes out and does the scan and then it takes five or 10 days to turn it around and a bit of prep work. But that's what we should be aspiring to, isn't it? hundred percent. I mean, you know, uh, I bleat on about this all the time, but you know, I'm trying to work out what to do here where I live and there is no easy path. You've got to find someone, presumably through a recommendation, or you've got to go on trust. You've got to do all sorts of check-in references. You've got to do the research on your own strategies. Like there's so much work people have to do that's self-driven, which doesn't need to be because the whilst every building is its own unique environment and that does need to be treated as such. Like the broader solutions, what you're looking for, what you're trying to find. Man, there's we know like we know what needs to be done we just need to have the people the materials like the the facility to make it happen identifying the similarities across the the country um between property types is a key bit of work that we've been focusing on so there's a lot of archetypes which might be repeated in Nottingham and in London and in fact we've seen that um it has to be has been the case where there's an identical archetype that they can use the, the uh, panels that Emily described that Amelius have manufactured. But bringing the manufacturer up into this um, programme is only part of the puzzle because we need to then get the housing providers to sort of aggregate their um, all their homes in. And so then you've got more like hundreds and thousands of homes and that makes it much more attractive to the manufacturer. And it really is key to get the manufacturer working with the client because they need to produce a product that responds to the client's demand not what the manufacturer thinks is a great product and put it out to market that it needs to be driven by the client's needs and then ultimately the ultimate client is the tenant or the homeowner so what are their needs and how can we make it best performing for them in both the ultimate performance of that new building or the new newer because it's been uh, improved um, but also the way it responds in terms of its health. And so that's why we we um, have this monitoring performance as well. So it's not just about uh, doing it quickly. It's about a monitor performance over 30 years or not sure if it's strictly 30, but over a longer term period to make sure that it's performing as it should be and that the um, health of the home and the occupants is considered as well, which I think is a bit more unique for energy sprong. That's not something that's repeated across other retrofit um, strategies. So it sort of sounds like it's not just procurement people you need to get on board or the manufacturers, it's the building designers, like architects and the like. How do you go about recruiting them? It's quite an interesting question, really, because at the moment, some of the projects that we're, uh, we're seeing in, in the um, innovation partnership have got you know, more than one design team involved, quite a lot of consultants, and there's quite a lot of cost involved in that. Mm. And then you find things like somebody goes out and does a scan of the building. And then when it comes to appointing the manufacturer, which is some way down the line, after all your designs have been done, the manufacturer needs their own scan anyway. So you're duplicating quite a lot of effort in uh, some of these projects and that then adds to the cost. So what you don't want to do is to kind of, is to take the designer's role out of this because it's really important to have designers involved in this and to get good quality design. But wondering, we're, we're looking at, where do they sit? Do they sit, you know, within a, man a manufacturing team? Do they sit within a product development team? Um, 
Or do you always end up having a, a designer on the side of the client who's doing a design that you then take to market and procure and a manufacturer comes along and says, it doesn't quite fit what you've designed, but how about we you know, make that work? So that process at the moment for manufacturing doesn't work brilliantly, I think. And that, um, and that lesson that Emily's just described about where does the designer sit and how quickly do they come in and how quickly does the manufacturer come in is replicated in the new build sector. And you've got the DFMA overlay, the Design for Manufacturing REBA overlay, which basically outlines that you need to bring in MMC knowledge and capability at stage zero, of REBA stage zero. And the designers need to be thinking about the manufacturing aspect at stage zero as well. So that is different to a normal retrofit where you might bring the products in or you might specify the products much later down the line. You've got to be thinking about that from the outset and involving the manufacturer so that you're not duplicating things like scans um, and that the scan is what the manufacturer needs and not then having to be done again later. We're, we're yeah. trialing it at the moment on a on a we're trialing it on a heat pump ready project in Kent where we've we've procured an architect, um, Kin, and they are doing uh, archetype level designs for us. So rather than doing property level designs, they're doing archetype level designs and they're going to work with manufacturers to try and ensure that we've got some manufactured solutions that work for those archetypes. And we're aiming to get planning agreed at an archetype level as well, which is done in some boroughs and some local authority areas. And in others, they're requiring a planning application for every single individual home um, with all of the different assessments that go alongside that and the delays that are associated with that. Whereas if you can go for an archetype level planning, an archetype level design, and then you get buy-in from people in the neighbourhood, it it doesn't matter who signs up when then in your program. So you can end up having far more homes retrofitted because you've got this agreement and this approach. Um, and then you only nail down exactly which properties are going to be retrofitted when at the time that it suits the person that lives in the property. Mm. So it just helps again with sort of smoothing the the program delivery for those different key stakeholders. So it can it's be interesting. Bit... The, the, the concern I have is, um, um, if you don't have a design, if you don't have the contractor or manufacturer being answerable to a designer um, who who they haven't employed themselves, um, what what risks does that bring? I'm just thinking of you know uh, the situation in 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 Ireland, like with, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK with the big house builders, where I know architects who talk about um, you know uh, trying to argue for. Um, I remember Joseph Little, the Irish prominent Irish uh, building physicist and architect and academic now, um, talking many years ago about working on housing schemes um, uh, during the Celtic Tiger years um, for you know uh, some of the big house builders and um, trying to demand that they just met building regulations with regard to insulation, just just put the insulation in the wall as they were required to, and he became disparagingly known as Mister Insulation, you know, and uh, and kind of. You know, uh, uh, the idea that 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 uh, an architect who is employed by a builder would be would 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 be uh, you know tr- trying to demand that the, the the bare minimum legal standards are are upheld um, was uh, was was audacious. You know, so uh, that's that that interest that that aspect is interesting. You know, how you um how you ensure um, what what mechanisms you have in place to ensure that corners are not cut. Um, in that approach you know I think that that comes back to what Elle was talking about with the performance um, monitoring and the performance guarantees and actually you know it's it's absolutely bonkers that we've got this industry where people are building things and then they're not responsible for whether they work or not and they just walk away how does that happen 
And, uh, you know, that's what we've got to address, really, isn't it? Because people should be delivering good quality that works as as it's expected to. You shouldn't need to have to police every single building job to make sure it's done as it should be done. Can you tell oh. us a bit more about the monitoring? Because that's, that's it's a good point. Um, what what exactly does the monitoring include? What are the parameters of it? You know, is it just energy usage, or do you get into thermal comfort and uh, into air quality or anything like that? Yeah. We've so, got, I, go on. Are you... uh, we've got an energy strong promise. Um, so there's guarantees around the comfortable um, internal conditions in the in the home year round. Enough hot water. Um, enough plug load so the electricity for the home and that it feels and it feels good and looks good um and we've got we we have to fund it as well the um the, the, the promise the, the the monitoring i think it's the the interesting thing is what do you put in to actually make sure that the home is meeting that promise and it is you can have the rolls royce of monitoring solutions um, which is where a lot of the projects are at the moment, because you really want to make sure that they're working and you want to make sure that if something doesn't work, you've got enough data to go back and understand why it's not working on these first ones. But actually, do we need that in the long term once we've seen that solutions are working? Possibly not. And then you can go back if something isn't working and do some more analysis on those specific properties. Um, yeah. But yes, to answer your question, we do include uh, temperature and humidity Um where there's innovative things trialed so for example somebody has trialed recently on one of the projects we've been involved in um extracting air from below ground and uh using that as kind of preheated air to um to warm the incoming air for ventilation in that particular property they put additional sensors in to see how that's working so we would always Mm. advocate that on these projects where you're trying something particularly unusual or innovative um, new sensoring or, or extra sensoring is included to check how that's working so that you've got the the data there to prove to other clients when the solution providers are putting this forward as an idea that they want to use that it actually works and that it's not going to do the building or the occupants any harm yeah we've seen there have been a few passive health projects in the uk that have uh, that have done that i know that there's been uh, uh, I've heard stories of, of projects on the continent with it can work very well um, but I have heard stories which I need to delve into more actually for, on the continent of the odd project which had, had issues from a condensation perspective with that kind of pre-tempered air you know but if you can make it work it's very uh, it's very appealing and, and, the, and the data I've seen from the UK projects uh, there was one in London uh, from memory um, we're looking promising you know and there's that, a couple of, of approaches for ventilation as well because you might use um mechanical ventilation heat recovery and vhr and a lot of the projects we work on do use that technology alongside heat pumps but we're also exploring other ventilation um strategies around more um passive ventilation with uh special vents in the window which open and close depending on the moisture and it's a lot it's a lot lower tech if you like so it's not using energy constantly and right. we don't know yet which of these methods are going to be right and in fact they're not all going to be this it's not going to be one answer fits all one solution fits all it's going to be for some buildings you want more yeah. of a localized ventilation approach and for other buildings you want more of a whole house ventilation system and then when you've got flats that's going to be different again because you might not have enough um space for ventilation runs to go everywhere and if you're minimizing the um amount of disruption inside that again might call for a different strategy so we probably need to start 
grouping together the, the different approaches and then mm. understand how could they can be applied the different archetypes and different building types that we, we want to retrofit yeah so so yeah. where you are uh doing this research trying to work out which solution fits in the best place how do you validate that process because there are so many variables we've got a, we've got um, a couple of really clever guys working on our team who are building physicists who know an awful lot about um the technology and about monitoring and they're putting in place uh systems where they're uh, checking the situation in the pre-retrofit scenario and then a longer term monitoring plan post-retrofit and um, testing how these technologies are working and understanding the user behavior that goes alongside it because obviously like you say there's so many variables at play um and the more retrofits that we do and the more data that we can gather the more intelligence we'll have on on what the best approaches are that makes sense was that one of the first references to having fellas working at Energy Spawn? It was. I almost jumped in then, Elle, and I said guys and girls. Because, um, <laughs> yes. actually, we have got some Sorry. very technical girls. You being one of them. But um, it's interesting that there have been no fellas mentioned as well. Uh, it, it seems... This is the, I, um, yeah, I wanted to raise this, that this is the first time I've worked on a team that there's been more women than men. Um, which is quite a novelty for me as an engineer. And I've um, been working for more than two decades and I've always been in the minority and I've just accepted that's the way it is and that's fine. Um, but it's a real pleasure to work with so many amazing women at Energy Sprong. And the, the guys are great too because they're big advocates um, for making sure that we've got a diverse workforce. And, um, they're, you know, they're real big supporters of the cause to diversify both retrofit and wider construction. And this is a big uh, area of, passion for both Emily and I. Well, it's interesting, actually, because you're moving into, you know, a different way of approaching retrofit. And I wonder, in some ways, does that afford an opportunity to break away from some of the deep-rooted cultural problems we have in the industry, you know, um, regarding diversity, for instance, you know? Um, you're, you're I don't sort know of, if, that's, if, that, if that's overstretching or not. But. I don't know. You're sort of intimating that, uh, well, something we've spoken about is like it it's very much a relationship-based approach to uh making things happen that your market development aspect which is uh yeah female coded behavior uh, i think it yeah <laughs> and there's a couple of aspects to this and sorry i'm, I'm gonna go off on one now but no please the, do the, the first thing is that we really need so many people to join in with retrofit like literally we need thousands of people so we need to appeal to a wide range of Wide, a wide range of people men and women um to join in so we need to make it appealing so hashtag retrofit is sexy is the first thing i would like to say um you know come and join in because it's such an exciting opportunity to to change people's lives um but also there's a lot of opportunities in industrialized retrofit for um a more diverse workforce for example women who are more restricted to their workplace so they're not able to travel um in construction there's a lot of travel involved so if you're going to a manufacturing facility and you're on a regular shift pattern firstly that is quite conducive to um women who might have or more they're more likely to have um childcare responsibilities um and also that can open it up to people with um disabilities as well they might be wheelchair users or um you know they wouldn't normally be able to work on a construction site but they might be able to work in a manufacturing facility and there could be things put in place um, to enable them to work in that um, situation as well. So there's sort of multifacets to this, that not only is it, it's a it's a place where women and others can join in, 
but also we need them to because we we don't want to um, halve our pool of people. No, it's it's absolutely boneheaded. You know, um, why would you restrict yourself like that? You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, that's it's it's very interesting. Um, we ran a we ran a hackathon uh, at the start of last year, about this time last year, I think, and that was intended to try and get new people into the uh, retrofit space, or so to get them to understand the opportunity and the challenge um, of of entering this market. And we ended up with some. Uh, it was mainly women, and we had women architects, we had women students who entered this, we had teams, we had individuals, we had some students from um, who, did, who were doing VR and AR through Leeds University, I think. And uh, some of the ideas they came up with were brilliant. And a few of those people have gone on to uh, to have training opportunities or employment opportunities through some of the people we work with in, in the uh, Energy Sprong ecosystem. Um, so I think initiatives like that are really important as well to get the idea out there and to make it cool and to make it sexy. Like Elle says, you know, you've got to actually put some excite, exciting opportunities out there, give people some challenges that they can come and solve with a completely different uh, a new mindset and new perspective. Yeah. Well, uh, well this... what impact does this have on clients too? Because, you know, like um, a lot of women are going to be clients or a lot of non-misogynist men as well who, who don't want... Um, you know, uh, who may have preconceived notions, some well-founded in some cases, um, on what what uh, it means to get a builder in, you know, um, to do works. So is there not, is, you know, is there not a way to kind of utilize this to kind of uh, to get people to reconceive uh, what the whole process, uh, the whole experience of getting a retrofit done, for instance, is going to be like for them? I was with yes. Chantal. Uh, I'm going to talk about Chantelle. She works for Osborne. And I was with her on um, Tuesday in Enfield having a look at a retrofit project. And um, she was only, no, there were two women on site, actually, because there was also the uh, neighbourhood liaison person. Um, but Chantelle was there overseeing 40 operatives. And um, I, I was saying how proud I was of her and what she was doing. And that she seemed to be really enjoying her job. She was really great talking to all the tenants. She was in their homes. She introduced me to a number of them. And I think that uh, it's not that women um, do that better, but there's just a different approach that I think we need if we're talking to lots of different people. And when you've got tenants, of course, there's a wide range of, of stakeholders that you need to speak to. And I think bringing in different perspectives, men and women, is only going to enhance and improve the situation. It's not going to be a bad thing. Yeah, I'm quite intrigued by so one of the conversations that we seem to be having with everyone at the moment is about the nature of uh, how to make this whole space more encouraging for uh, women and other uh, marginalised groups in construction. So, I mean, anyone that's not white men, broadly. And one of the ways to do that is like construction is often seen as a, a lesser status role lots of money in it but uh it doesn't have social status in the same way you can get social status out of the money but one of the things we've been talking about is that it's switching uh its perception from blue collar to white collar and what you're talking about here is at all levels it's very much a, a white collar aside aside from the production line work uh is very white collar approaches you know it's all strategy it's thinking it's problem solving it's the bit of engineering that is often more open to women 
than the getting dirty boots on site stuff which that's I know a problem is incredibly... across the, a problem across the whole construction sector though that um there's a misconception that is taught to uh is taught by the teachers in schools that construction is something you go into um if you're not academic and i think that a lot of people have ended up in construction um accidentally and there's some people who choose it but a lot of people kind of oh i did it because my dad was a builder or um, yeah. I kind of did. I was unemployed, and I saw a job doing this, so I sort of fell into it as an administrator, and then I worked my way up, or whatever it is. So we do need to change that narrative. And I suppose um, one way that we can do that is um, to really demonstrate all the digital opportunities within construction, and, and by integrating digital into our methodologies, we really are the bringing many benefits other than um, attracting new talent. We're also able to understand a whole lot more about the buildings that we're delivering and um, digital twins um, and digitalization is something that we're looking at quite um, strongly and we're working with the IET uh, which is Institute of Engineering Technology, MTC Manufacturing Technology Centre, AMRC Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. I don't like it when there's just acronyms and people don't explain them but um, yep. it's, a, it's a consortium of organisations that um, are looking at digital twins and we're we're looking at this space aren't we Emily that um, making sure that we're not missing the boat in terms of understanding digital twins for retrofit projects and this is so important because at the end of the life of these products and it's hard to think about the end of life when we're um, putting these panels and these pods and these interventions into homes but in 50 60 years time and before that for um, the parts when we maintain them we do need to understand how um, and how and, and what we're going to use to um, either dispose of these products or um, amend them in some way so they can continue their life. And the digital aspect really unlocks that question because we can um, have product data integrated within the digital twin and then understanding of how that um, item's been performing over the life of its life so that um, we can understand what to do with it next. Also so really does that mean you're also looking at things like um, uh, in your monitoring, uh, you know, kind of burying probes in uh, in building fabric? You know, I, I'm not saying that should be something that should be done across the board. Something to 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 check the conditions in in the fabric. We haven't done that yet in in terms of walls. Um, it might be something to think about. But where some of the value of that is from day one is is around reducing the maintenance cost. So you asked about the monitoring and how do we do the monitoring? And I think those things are really well linked. So when we went to Rotterdam, Elle arranged a visit to Rotterdam uh, last year, towards the end of last year. And we took a bunch of contractors and housing providers and other people to see some of these factories. And this is where the, the one that you were talking about earlier, RC panels came in, isn't it, Elle? But also we went to see Factory Zero who are making these energy modules and they've been doing it for quite a few years now. And they've got two and a half thousand energy modules installed in homes and they're getting all of this amazing data back about how they're performing. And they're able to diagnose and and remotely solve. I think it was something like 70 percent of the issues that occur. And because of the amount of data they've got, they're only having to go out and do servicing every three years on these heat pump modules because actually they can do things that they need to. They can send updates and they can resolve things without having to go to site or when they do have to go to site they know exactly what needs doing so they take the right parts and it's a really quick fix so the sort of digitalization and digital twin um abilities that you know the the cost saving that can come with that for maintenance the ability as Elle has said to be able to replace things only when they need replacing 
and actually mm. to look at how yeah. you how you make that life cycle better um therefore reducing the embodied carbon in these uh these components and reducing the embodied carbon of the operational expenditure not just the yeah. the capital yeah. carbon cost uh, yeah you're right with that, and you Jeff. get nice graphs to look at and you get you know you get exciting digital stuff to play with and uh you know that does appeal to a different sector it's like cubot yeah. when you look at cubot as a you know a new retrofit technology and you've got people using xbox controllers to drive robots under floors you know <laughs> retrofit is sexy and that's the kind of message we need to bring people into this who are you know school leavers we want to make it a career of choice an aspirational career not just something that people fall into by accident very good yeah um, um one thing i was curious to know about is air tightness because i understand that there's not actually an air tightness target for energy sparing is that, is that right no there isn't an air tightness target um we don't specify how the outcome is achieved we specify an outcome and that outcome is around the uh, kilowatt hours per meter squared and about the um, net import of energy. So in the Netherlands, the, the model requires that the home generates as much energy as it uses. And they set 30 kilowatt hours um, as the meter squared requirement for the fabric, for the, the thermal performance. The reason for that in the Netherlands is that if the home generates as much as it uses over a 12 month period, this is a zero bill. So it's it's null on the meter. I can't say it in Dutch, but that's the, effectively what it means is if you get zero on the meter at the end of the year, the tenant has nothing to pay the energy supplier at all. So the energy supplier is managing that those peaks of energy consumption and energy generation within the grid entirely at the moment. That's changing. But in the UK, obviously, that isn't the same. So our performance outcome specification has been adapted to allow a bit more flexibility on the basis that the cost, the, the business case model isn't driven in the same way by having net zero and, and null on the meter. Um, as I said earlier, net zero is a bit simpler for us because it really was that kind of net zero on the meter means that the home generates as much as it uses for the family and all of their living for the year. Um, and that also generates this great business case. It's not quite the same. We've come up with a different performance outcome specification, but we are looking at whether that's the right thing in the UK at the moment, because it might be that a slightly lower fabric performance and a better energy system and controls might work and and work better in terms of smoothing the requirements on the grid and making a better business case to be able to fund all the retrofit we need to do. It might be that better fabric performance and not having a heat pump might work. So those are some of the things that we want to test out a bit. So um, at the moment, our supply chain tests those things and we find out the results through doing the monitoring. But we've brought somebody in-house recently, um, a girl, again, uh, who is a technical whiz um, architect who's been doing some work on modelling different archetypes and looking at different performance approaches. And so we've brought her in, we're sponsoring her to do a PhD with the University of Nottingham so she can support us with um, with sort of running these different scenarios and looking at the most cost-efficient and beneficial ways to get to net zero. Yeah, that's very interesting. I would like to know in this case on the air tightness. Um, um, I'd be interested to know the kind of worst case scenario for where a building has got maybe high levels of insulation, poor air tightness, uh, very poor air tightness. Um, what the implications are from a building physics perspective, um, especially if it's got a ventilation system which is, if it's non-mechanical. I, 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 I'm. Don't get me wrong. I'm. I'm not saying heat recovery ventilation should be required everywhere. Um, uh, or uh, the mechanical ventilation is always a 
absolute prerequisite. Um, but I know with passive passive stack ventilation, for instance, that uh, I'd have concerns about its performance in certain weather conditions because it is kind of weather dependent. Um, mm. And, um, you know, summer, still summer days basically are the one that you're most worried about with passive stack, uh, that you've got neither the wind speed or the, the the temperature difference to create the buoyancy to drive air movement. Um, and I'm reminded of um, Wolfgang Feist, the, the founder of the Passive Institute, pointing out that the reason they set uh, air tightness is a, at such a, a stringent level of passive house. Now, it might not be uh, the same issue in the UK um, uh, to the same extent because the climate is different, uh, was that they'd noticed from studying early attempts at super-insulated buildings uh, in the 70s and 80s um, that uh, if you don't make buildings airtight, um, uh, they may fail um, because of, of uh, vapour getting into the into the, into the, the structure um, and condensing. Um it should be less of a risk with external insulation, I think. Um, but uh, I, you know, I just I, I'd love to know where you're going in terms of um, uh, um, the building physics uh, element of, of that. Uh, and it might be that that you've solved it by it might be that people are doing good air tightness, uh, pretty good air tightness on all the ener- on the on all the energy sprung projects. Anyway, to know, um, I think they are it out there. I think they're looking at air tightness, and what I witnessed on site on Tuesday was that they were applying a, a membrane. I think it's part of it, without a doubt. They're not okay. just going to apply the insulation. I think five air changes per hour is probably the uh, the highest we've seen, and it's okay. demand controlled ventilation that sits alongside that. And I think okay, it's, well that's still mechanically driven anyway. You know, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's all mechanically driven. It's just not whole house heat recovery in some cases. And I think the view is there's a bit of a payoff in the climate we're in. Um, yeah, yeah. I, demand controlled MEV. Um, uh, mechanical extract ventilation is a technology that we've seen um, with a pretty long history of use in Ireland now at this stage, and um, and uh, in deployed in lots of successful retrofits, you know, with happy customers. Heartening about the approach, all of the things you've been describing there is it's systemic thinking rather than just like a fixed solution thinking. You're yeah. taking account for the interacting systems and the. The building physics part, which, you know, we use it as this abstract specter hanging over things. Like, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's there. It's in it. Yeah. It might not be said explicitly, but, yeah. So we're running close to, to time now. I think there were two things that we might not have discussed. We were talking about talking about Lego and this heat pump project that we were discussing yesterday, Emily. Uh, I don't know if you want to pick uh, up yeah. on either of those or... I think I think we should talk Lego because Elle uh, ran a workshop for our team last last week, this week, this week. Well, it was only earlier this week, um, which was nice because we've got some new team members, and um, so we wanted to do something that was a bit of an icebreaker. So Elle ran her Lego is a platform workshop, and uh, it was just I I just thought it was worth mentioning because it was really good, and some of the facts about Lego were amazing, and the fact that some of our team couldn't quite build something that Elle's twelve year old can build in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that, was brilliant. that was funny that bit yeah so shall i tell you about the workshop and uh why, yeah, please. I, yeah, yeah, why? Yeah. so i mean you've probably heard the construction innovation hub talk about platforms for construction and this has been a big area that they've been investing in and they published the uh, platform rule book this year and i've been thinking about platforms for longer than i'd realized really because it's all down to using component parts or kit of parts is a term that's often used 
um, and making sure that they're interoperable so we can use these common parts in more than one system. So I, I think I was probably playing with Lego with my children and thinking about platforms and what they were. And I suddenly thought Lego is a platform. And you actually, you know more about platforms than you think you do because platforms actually underpin some of the world's most valuable firms um, like Tesla and Google. They use a platform and there's other platforms that I won't talk about because it will ruin my workshop if you book it that you won't be able to guess what these platforms are. But platforms have three three fundamental things, which is um, a core, the uh, connection piece and the peripherals. And that I talked about this, uh, Jeff, when I met you in Scotland and I held up my piece of Lego and I said, this is a platform. And um, when we're thinking about platforms for retrofit, it might be that you might be thinking, well, how on earth are we going to industrialize and, and use the same pieces across all these homes, which are all different? Well, actually, you can use uh, the same pieces and just connect them in a slightly different way. And you can address so many homes using the same common pieces and different peripheral components. So one of the ideas that we need to explore as an MDT um, and that we want to explore with the supply chain as well is about how can we make the components at the different parts of the supply chain be interoperable? And we're, we're in quite a unique position at the moment because the supply chain is really immature. Let's, let's be honest, there's a long way to go. So we're at the stage where we can hopefully guide and mould these platform component manufacturers to, uh, to come together. And by um, being open with their, um, their IP, hopefully they'll see the benefits of being able to use their components across the piece, not just in retrofit, but in new build as well, because we saw this fantastic project in Dedham in, in southeast Netherlands, where it was one neighbourhood and they had over 150 homes that they had um, improved. And alongside these homes, there were new build homes using exactly the same manufacturer. And these, mm. this manufacturer is using a platform approach. And it, all of this um, has happened in the last sort of six months, thinking about platforms and thinking about how how we need to communicate about platforms for our sector and um lego is something we're all familiar with it's a toy that we probably all know about even if we've never played with it and actually it was quite a good i i, I mean obviously it's my idea but i think it's a good one but um getting getting the team to play with the lego is is quite interactive and it's memorable as well because it's something you can physically play with and, and think about so um hopefully it won't be the last time no I well, my yeah. lego well, is a platform it's, workshop it's, it's fascinating and it reminds me of um um there's a contractor who I think have worked on some energy sprung projects who've been involved in uh, maybe in one of the projects you described called Bowtie, uh, if yeah. you know them. Yeah, we know um, them. Yeah, yeah, we're working on yeah. some of our projects, yeah. yeah. Uh, Raphael there, he, um, as you may know, he a few years ago built a passive house for the kind of legendary and now sadly late uh, engineer Max Fordham. Um, it's a passive house in London. Um, and I don't know whether... Raphael had been talking to to you Al, at the time, but uh, I think he may have taken your advice too literally because they they uh, he uh, tried to build controls for uh, they designed this this system to enable uh, shading uh, to be automatically so solar shading to be uh, to, to, to be automatically closing windows um, uh, or or you know uh, yeah bringing kind of uh, external shading down over windows or, or internal or outside external um i think it was internal um and Raphael built the system using lego techniques 
<laughs> first. Oh I think I think the parts weren't quite hard wearing enough for the uses that they were putting it to. <laughs> but just to be clear, you are not telling people to build retrofits out of actual <laughs> Lego, right? <laughs> no, that that's right. It's to use the the same approach of having component parts that can interconnect and interoperable. That's the really key bit that we. You could have a manufacturer, and I could name lots of manufacturers that are um, making facades, um, and they their own parts, they can use them across different uses. But what we really want to get to is an industry where people can um, put parts in and out and that they're all interconnected. And there are industries, the car industry, we're going to go back to them. They do that. So, And there's still there's still competitors within the car industry. So why can't we have the same thing? in wider construction and of course in retrofit absolutely and i saw Raphael on tuesday and he didn't tell me anything about that um, <laughs> so we wrote did. about it in the magazine i'll send you a link to it yeah Raphael is um one of the fantastic inventors that or innovators that we've been working with and he's come up with this this basically it's a, a box system it's an, an energy box with containing or housing a lot of the new technology needed so it's a plug and play system. It's a kit of parts approach, but it's also using another of the um, seven MMC strands um, of category four, which is 3D printed parts. And they're using a, a 3D printed uh, ventilation duct that can fit within the box because they're trying to make the box as small as possible. And um, mm. so the pipe work needs to fit in quite a small space. So he's printing this component. And I think that's really exciting that um, he's thinking about how we can bring the different parts of MMC uh, together to solve these problems that we're facing and retrofits probably got more problems than new build and because it, it's mm. more difficult let's be honest he was uh yeah. Raphael was one of the innovators that came to Germany with us for our uh our project partner meeting where we were looking at can we help some of these innovators get their products out into a wider market so we had a, a session where they pitched to solution providers from Germany and the Netherlands and France and housing providers from the same um and it went down really well and I got a bow tie at the end of it as well. He gave me one. Uh, yeah, I always I like to think because doesn't he have his site <laughs> operatives wearing a, a, a uniform, an outfit with a bow tie printed onto it? Um, I don't know about site operatives, but definitely all of their uh, all of their management team. So they were there doing their presentation, wearing their bow ties. <laughs> used to early days, a member of bow tie. I remember seeing a kind of a, a printed bow tie on a uh, uh, on some sort of a, a top, um, and I just thought. How's that going to play out on construction sites? <laughs> it's a very yeah. good branding thing, though, isn't it? I think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. There was another point, Dan. The other... the other that, um, we were, you mentioned um, the Lego, and what was the other one, Dan? So there was this this heat pump initiative that we were discussing yesterday. Oh, yeah. That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, this is the other heat pump ready project that we've got, which is looking at how do we develop an integrated comfort and billing service. Um, so this is the idea of. Uh, the energy sprung model is, as I said earlier, you harness some of the savings that the tenant's making and you address that split incentive that exists for landlords where they have to make all of the investment and then they don't get any money back for that. They can't charge any more rent. Um, and in some cases, the tenant gets a drastically reduced energy bill, which in this world of fuel poverty is really important. Um, but actually, there's a there's a, a middle way, we think, where the tenant can still be warm and comfortable and live in an affordable home. and you can generate some return for the landlord. 
But what's key to that is trying to make sure the systems are performing as they should be, trying to Mm -hmm. optimise them so that you can get grid revenues and grid services by making sure that they're buying energy at the right times and exporting it at the right times. Um, And then also that maintenance piece. So actually reducing the cost of maintaining heat pumps so that you can make savings on having to go out and do gas servicing um, every year, which is what would happen before the retrofit. So one of the things that, that we've been advocating for is for this comfort charge uh, where the resident pays a flat rate um, to their landlord as well as a small energy bill and for that they've got this guaranteed comfort the the energy sprung promise Um, and what we've realized in some of these projects so far in the pilot projects is that it's really hard for anybody in the current supply chain or the housing sector to deliver that because it's too complicated and it's all these different things that have to happen that are quite technical and they don't have the skills in-house to do it um, so we are looking at how do we develop that as a service at the moment, which mm. could be a, a bit of an end-to-end service and help um, generate that value back from these retrofits, which then enables more of them to happen more rapidly. So it's yeah. quite exciting. We're looking at two different projects, one where we're kind of addressing the the beginning end with this archetyping and kind of component-based design, and then one where we're looking at the end of the, the process, rather than doing the bit in the middle, the construction sector bit actually the bits at the the front the front end and the the back end i think are the bits where the consumer interface becomes more important yeah and that's where we can probably add a bit more value we think and and putting comfort the idea that one might be comfortable in one's home you know anathema to so many people in the uk like it's a really novel and interesting way of centering it i'll look forward to uh seeing more of that yeah <laughs> um cool all right then well I'm I'm actually I'm rinsed out now. Uh I I need to get off and have a little lie down. I'm toast, Jeff. Like Was it the Lego that pushed you over the edge. <laughs> well, I've I've been ill today and we've got we're in the middle of a bid writing project, uh, which is just chaos. Uh and we had the workshop this morning, uh and uh yeah, this. And they all require attention. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I'm having to concentrate and focus. And, uh, yeah, I'm it's tough. Yeah. Well, what we should do, we should um, conclude, shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, do you want to conclude for us then, Jeff? Okay. Listen, Emily, L, thank you so much for, for coming on. It's been a real eye opener. And um, I'm keen to learn a lot more about, about Energy Swing, but there's so much that you're that you're doing, which I think is groundbreaking and and exciting um and i'm looking forward to seeing how how uh how this progresses so thanks very much yeah where should people look you up are you doing anything you want to plug uh are we doing anything you want to plug um your lego on our website Have have a look on our website um we've got news on our website uh we've got jobs on our website and uh we've got project updates um also social media we're quite active um on social media our comms leads just gone off on maternity leave but we've recruited somebody new who started this week Catherine so we're expecting to see lots of social media LinkedIn and Twitter posts coming out soon and our website is energysprong.uk and energy is spelt with an i-e not a y you can find and sprong is what s-p-r-o-n-g isn't it yes it indeed. is I mean, i'm sure if you google some approximation It'll it'll pop up. Uh, we'll put in the show notes as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Inevitably. But we've got our fingers in um quite a few pies, which is 
wouldn't, we wouldn't be very good at waitresses, would we? Because we'd probably get fired. <laughs> but we're trying to, you know, go across. We're trying to reach out to lots of people in the sector when we think that's really impo- important. And we we might be running some supplier days um, in the coming months because we want to re-engage with the market. So I suppose, look, if you're a supplier and you want to know how to join in with this, then look, keep an eye on our socials because we're going to organise some supplier days and we'll be running some trips to see uh, some of these projects in action. So look out for those and we look forward to welcoming you to that. Wonderful. All right. Well, um, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for listening as well. Cheers. Goodbye. Oh, no, not go- goodbye yet. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> review. Uh, five stars. Five stars, as you say, Dan. The to- yeah. toxic positivity. Please give us five yeah. stars, even if you think it's rubbish. Oh, the, yeah. oh ACB, the Passive House Plus. Subscribe to Passive House Plus. Advertise if you can. Join ACB and ACAN. Yeah. Uh, done. Out. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. 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 Oh, Thanks cool. a million.